Amen. Well, we are in week three of our series, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, Why Do Bad Things Happen to Good People? And we've been talking about that idea for the last couple of weeks, and we've discovered that there really are no truly good people in the world. That in the first week, and if you missed any of the series, we encourage you to go back. You can watch it online. You can watch it through the app. But we discovered that based on the Word of God and the words of Christ, that there are no really good people in the world today. There's only one good, and that is God. And so we unpack that, that there's really not a lot of bad things happening to really good people, that in essence, really what we see is bad things happening to bad people and bad people doing bad things to one another. And that we do live in a fallen and broken world. But as we understand that question, why do bad things happen to good people, we unpacked it even more that first week that really the question is, why do good things happen to bad people? You know, if we are so sinful and we have these issues that we battle with, every single one of us battle with, we've all fallen into sin, none of us are perfect, and so we do bad things, we think bad things, we say bad things, and if that's the case, then why in the world would God even remotely want to bless us? Why would good things happen to bad people? And we discover that the reason is because God is drawing all mankind to him in the hopes that they will come to repentance, that they will trust in Christ. And so he extends what's called common grace. This is just the goodness of God that falls on all of us. The rain falls on the just and the unjust. And God is a good, gracious God who allows all peoples to experience blessings. And again, we're talking about Mother's Day. If you're a mom here today and you've experienced the birth of a child, that is a great blessing. That is a great part, a thing to be a part of. Obviously, there's some things involved in that that weren't so great. We won't go into too many details there. Um, I'm sure Sandra was praising God for some drugs and some things of that nature when she was going through her labors and all of that. But, I mean, and we know why moms remember all of that, don't we, moms? Because you use that and you just keep it in a little holster. And so when your child's like 16, 17, 18 and giving you that lip, you know, you know the lip, that little kind of that. And if you have a, a teenage daughter, usually the hands go on the hip while they're giving you the lip. So just remember that, okay? If it's a boy, usually it's just eye rolls and whatevers and that's lames and okay, whatever. But they use that because they want to go, you know, I spent X number of hours in labor. And I've always wondered if, if ladies don't maybe exaggerate that just a little bit. You know, they're like, well, I started feeling some pain at this time, and I delivered at this time. It was like 15 hours, so I'm going to count all of it. All of it counts. It's all of it, okay? Some of you are like, I'm counting every day of the pregnancy. I'm counting all of it, okay? But we do that because we want to remind them, hey, I went through all that, and this is how you're going to treat me. But to be a mom, to be a parent, to be a grandparent, there's a great blessing there. And guess what? Non-believers, unbelievers, people that don't know Christ, that hate God, get to experience childbirth, get to experience having a child. So there's, there's a blessing in that that is just a common grace. It's a common blessing to experience the beauty of family and relationships and health and creation and all these things. Happy memories are a gift of God. And so all of these things are just blessings of God. Why? To point us, to draw us, and to lure us and kind of bring us into this relationship with Christ. He wants us to have this relationship with him. He, he is drawing us. The other aspect of this is that he loves blessing his children. Those that are Christians that still struggle in sin, as we all do, he blesses you and allows good things to come to your life because he enjoys blessing his children. 
he, the Bible says we looked at it, he delights in those who delight in him. And so when we delight in God, he wants to bless us and it brings him joy. But we discovered last week as we unpacked our next question in this series that really the core question we're asking is, is why do bad things happen at all? We understand there's no real good people. We can really understand that. We've worked with people. We've lived with people. We've had friendships with people. We know that people can be sinful. We know that. But really the question we're asking is, why are there bad things at all? Why are there natural disasters? Why are there tragedies that happen? Why do these things take place? And the answer we discovered last week is that because in Genesis 3, all of the world, creation and mankind fell into sin. And as a result and a consequence of that sin, we live in a broken and fallen world. That creation groans and longs for the day when God will set all things right. Believers groan and long for the day when either he will return. And by the way, he's coming again. Amen. So either he's going to return and take us home or we're going to go home and be with him. And either way, we groan for that day. We long for that day. Why? Because God has placed eternity in our hearts and we know this is not how it's supposed to be. And we even know, even in the blessings of this world, the good things, we know it's still not what it's going to be like when we see Jesus face to face. And one day, our deepest longings will be satisfied. Now, we've tasted a little bit of that in Christ. We know what that feels like to some degree, and that's why we're groaning, because we've, we've just tasted. We've just tried a little sample of the fullness of God, and we're overwhelmed by that. Can you imagine the day that you see him face to face, your Savior who died on the cross for you, was buried and rose again? That you see the wounds, that you'll hear the praises of the tens upon tens upon tens of thousands of angels shouting praise to your Savior, to your God, to your Father. It's going to be a glorious day. But until that day, there's a groaning. Creation groans. We as believers groan. And the spirit within us groans. We talked about this. Even Jesus, when he was on earth, his heart broke for what he saw sin doing to the world that he created. So why are there bad things? Why do bad things happen? Because we live in a fallen world. Because sin has consequences. That's, that's a sermon in and of itself. That sin has consequences. You ever wonder why when you read the Old Testament, you get to books like Leviticus and you read about all the sacrificial things that were going on there. It's like, man, literally it's a book of death. Something's dying and, and it being sacrificed to cover what? Sin. Because sin will always equal death. James says that, that when lust hath conceived, it brings forth sin. And when sin, when it is finished, brings forth death. See, sin has consequences, and we're living in a world that is broken and fallen into sin because of what happened in Genesis 3. So why do bad things happen? Because of the consequence of sin. But praise God that he didn't leave us in that state. Yes, this is a broken world. Yes, there's bad people doing bad things. But God is working. And we said it last week. There are things happening. God is moving. Things have been blessings provided into this world through the church, through the working of the Spirit through the body of Christ. Because people will say, wait a minute, now, there's, there's got to be good people doing good things. Well, as we said last week, the only reason that we as fallen sinners can do good things, even in our eyes, is because we've been given a moral conscience by God. We were created with that ability to know right from wrong. We don't act on it as we should, but we know. And then secondly, because of the influence of the Spirit through the church. 
that for the last 2,000 years, the only reason we see good things happening in the world is because God has moved through his church, through the work of the Spirit, and that's influenced the greater culture. That's encouraged and strengthened people's ideas of community and hospitality and ministry and grace and generosity. But what's the solution? We live in a fallen world. We see fallen things happen all around us. We're heartbroken by it. So what's the solution? If the world is broken and mankind is at their core bad, what possible hope do we have? What is the solution to fix what we see as wrong in the world? Well, we know, as we already said, one day God will set it all right. And there will be a new heaven and a new earth. There will be a time of judgment. But he will set all things right. But until that point, is there any hope of a solution? Something that we can put our minds and our eyes on to help us to endure this time and to be a blessing to the world around us? Well, simply put, two things I want to give you this morning. Simple message. I'm a simple person. No one was surprised by that. You didn't amen it, which I appreciate, but you probably wanted to. Two things, the gospel and worship. What's the solution? It's the gospel and it's worship. Acts chapter 16, turn there with me, very familiar passage, but we see a great example of this. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, you can turn to page 778, 778, I believe, and that would be Acts chapter 16, and we're going to start in verse 22. Now, we're not going to read the entire passage of this story. I encourage you to do so which really would be verses 16 through verse 40. But we're just going to kind of take the the main part that we're going to focus on this morning. So Acts 16, 22 through 32. This is what God's word says. And the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates rent off their clothes and commanded to beat them. This is Paul and Silas. Uh, In verse 23, and when they had many stripes upon them, they cast them into prison, charging the jailer to keep them safely. I've always found that verse kind of odd. I'm going to tell the jailer to keep them safely. We just beat on them, but make sure they're safe. What it really means is to keep them secure, to make sure they don't get away. We really want to keep these guys here is what it's saying. Goes on to say this, because of that, verse 24, who having received such a charge, thrust them into the inner prison. So this isn't, this is kind of like the deeper part of the prison. Think, don't think prison like our modern idea of prison. Think more, um, maybe dungeon. Think more that mindset. Goes on to say this, and made their feet fast in stocks. So they're chained, they're bound, they're in the deepest part of the prison. And at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God, and the prisoners heard them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bands were loosed. And the keeper of the prison, awakening out of his sleep and seeing the prison doors open, he drew out his sword and would have killed himself, supposing that the prisoners had been fled. But Paul cried with a loud voice, saying, Do thyself no harm, for we are all here. Then he called for a light and sprang in. And came trembling and fell down before Paul and Silas and brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved and thy house. Let's pray and ask God to affirm his word in our hearts and minds. Father, as we go before your word this morning, we pray that it would be free to move, 
in and through our lives by the working of your Holy Spirit. We pray that the word would rebuke us, correct us, encourage us, challenge us, bless us, and instruct us in the things of righteousness, Lord. Wherever we are right now, whatever we need, we know that your word is the healing ointment that will provide what we need. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would be free in our hearts and minds, that we would surrender and allow our hearts and minds to be open to whatever you have for us, to lead us into whatever needs to be decided, whatever weight needs to be laid before you, whatever area of our lives we've been holding on to, that we would surrender, whatever fear we've been allowing to control us, we would surrender, and that we would know that your word is before us to give us an encouragement to keep our eyes on you. So I pray that we would do that this morning. Father, I, I genuinely thank you for every single person in this room, every person watching online. What a blessing it is to be before your word, to be gathered with your people. And so, Father, I pray that we would invest in this time, that we would not waste this time, but we would redeem the time, allowing you to lead us and guide us that we would get the most out of this time, Lord. That we wouldn't focus on anything else going on, but just you right now as we move through the service. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul and Silas find themselves in prison due to really two key things, two reasons they're in prison. And again, you can study the whole passage out. Uh, the end of this story, the end of this passage is quite amazing as well. When things start to get kind of figured out through the end of 16, um, it's just amazing what happens there even at a legal level. But I encourage you to read that. But basically, they're in prison for two reasons. One, for preaching Christ. And two, because they freed a girl from demonic possession. Uh, This girl was a slave who was demon-possessed, and her masters, those that owned her, used her to fortune-tell. And they would make money off of her because of her fortune-telling. And it's important to note right here that the devil and his demons, fallen angels, uh, are not all-knowing. Satan is not omniscient, omnipotent. He's he's not all-knowing, all-powerful, right? He has a limitation. He's a created being. So how is this demon-possessed girl able to fortune tell? Well, many believe that she's able only really to either under demonic influence, predict likely outcomes based on human behavior, which remember Satan's been watching human behavior for a long time up to this point, or whatever's been revealed in the word of God. Whatever's been revealed in the word of God or God has revealed, Satan would know those things. So Satan is only able to then fortune tell through his demonic possession of this girl, one of his demons, either what would make likely chance or likely outcome based on human predictability or revealed through the word of God. So this girl is not prophesying the future in a way that God's prophets would know the future because God knows the future. Satan only knows what's revealed from God about the future. And by the way, he does know he loses in the end. That's why he's so adamant to try to really get you before that point. Because he doesn't care about you. He wants to hurt God as much as possible. So here we see Paul and Silas. They cast this demon girl, this demon out of this girl, and they actually do a good thing. They do a very good thing. They save this woman from this demonic possession. But the problem is that she has these masters who were making a living on her fortune telling. And they're not very happy about this. And so they draw Paul and Silas before the local authorities, accuse them of some things, basically accuse them of, you know, upsetting the community, teaching things contrary to this or that. And so they need to be thrown in prison. So they're thrown in prison for preaching the gospel and freeing a girl from demonic possession. They did a very good thing 
a godly thing, a Christ-honoring thing, and they're thrown into the deepest part of the prison, beaten, and their their feet are fast in stocks. So we know the story. We read the whole passage, at least the part that we're going to focus on. We understand what kind of comes out of this, but I want us to put our minds back to where Paul and Silas were sitting in that prison before they knew what was going to be the outcome. They did a good thing, a blessed thing to this young girl, preached the gospel, and they're thrown in prison after being beaten with, quote, many stripes. You see, Paul and Silas are probably sitting there thinking, what in the world happened? What could possibly come out of this? Why would God allow this? Paul and Silas did a good thing, but were punished for it because at that time, Isaiah's words were still true that we talked about before, that naturally we call evil good and good evil. See, these masters called evil good and good evil. Paul and Silas did a good thing, but in their minds, it was an evil. And so they imprisoned them for this. So how do Paul and Silas respond What is the solution to their problem? What do they see as a solution to their problem? We're going to look at these in reverse order. The first thing I want to look at is the gospel. The gospel. Look at chapter 16, verse 30. It says this, And brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved, and thy house And they spake unto him the word of the Lord and to all that were in the house. So what is the solution here? What does Paul and Silas see as a solution to their problem, which is being imprisoned, going through a negative consequence for a positive thing, that they did something good and now there's a negative that comes out of it. When we look at our world today, we see all kinds of examples of this, that we do what God calls us to do and yet we still experience negative. We still experience bad situations, bad things happen. And we're like, God, why is this happening? I did what you called me to do. I'm doing what you called me to do. Not perfectly. No one does it perfectly. And then we find ourselves in a bad situation. We go, why? What is the solution to this? What is the answer to this? How do I respond to this? Well, the first thing is, Paul and Silas, we need to recognize the gospel. The gospel is truly, if you're taking notes, our greatest gift. Our greatest gift. It is an undeserved gift. And we unpack this a lot with the Galatians series. But I pray that it's still an encouragement to you. Uh, Have you ever stopped to think about the gospel being not only a great gift and our greatest gift, but it's an undeserved gift? If you're not familiar with why it's an undeserved gift, you can go to Romans chapter 2. We're not going to turn there for time's sake. But Romans chapter 2, write it down, verses 1 through 16. And you're going to find out that God has been storing up wrath. That those who are outside of Christ, when they leave this world, when they die, they will have the wrath of God on them, the Bible says. And that we will give an answer for our sin. And that answer for our sin is separation from God for all of eternity, apart from him in a place called hell. See, when we read Romans 2, or we understand the weight of our sin and the consequence of our sin, as I said before, there is a consequence to our sin. That apart from Christ, we will answer for our sin, and we will be judged and condemned and cast away from him in a place called hell for eternity. It doesn't sound pleasant. I don't like that the Bible says that, but the Bible says it, so I have to say it. And there's a lot of churches that won't tell you this. 
A lot of pastors that are afraid, if they tell you that if you continue in your sin apart from Christ and you die in that sin, you will be sent to a place called hell. Jesus' words, not my words. They think if they tell you that, you're not coming back next week. And the reason they are afraid of that is because that's happened and happens. Because, by the way, no one wants to hear that. Now, do I wish that everyone would just go to heaven? That'd be amazing. But the reality is that God has given us a choice. And he says, you either choose me or you choose death. Eternal death. There's no, there's no middle ground. There's no halfway ground where you can pray your way through. That's not in the Bible. And so here we understand that we deserve the wrath of God. It's not God being overreactive. It's not God being vindictive. It is literally we've earned. Romans 6, the wages of my sin is death. I've earned the wrath of God. I deserve it. I deserve it. There is no one good, only fallen into sin. There is none righteous, no, not one. And yet God in his grace grants unto sinners like us the gift of salvation. That if you repent of your sin, trust in Christ, believe that he died on the cross, was buried and rose again, and give your life to him and say, Lord, I am yours, I believe By faith, I receive your grace. The Bible says you are saved unto the day of redemption. You can never lose it because he gives you his spirit, Ephesians 1, and it will hold you. He will hold you, rather, unto the day of redemption. We looked at Philippians 1, 6 this last week in our men's Bible study, that he which begun a good work in you will complete it, will perfect it, will continue to do it unto the day of Christ Jesus. He's not giving up on you. He's not letting go of you. In Christ, you are saved for eternity. To be forgiven, to be extended grace should overwhelm us. It should push us into just utter humility before God to realize I deserved the wrath of God. And yet he graciously allows me, not because I earned it, he allows me to be under the blood of Christ. And that the blood of Christ covers my sin and I am now imputed or given the credit for the righteousness of Christ. Yes, we as believers experience bad things in this world. And yet in Christ, and compared to what awaited us outside of Christ, the gospel reminds us that even a small blessing from God in the midst of this broken world is cause to praise. I love, in a book I read recently by Milton Vincent, the book is called A Gospel Primer. It's a very simple little book. It reads more like a devotional. But in this book, I love what he talks about here in this example of God giving us even a little blessing in the midst of what we deserve and how it should overwhelm us. Listen how he phrases this in a gospel primer. The gospel reminds me first that what I actually deserve from God is a full cup churning with the torments of his wrath. So I want you to imagine for a moment a cup. If I was thinking and smart, I would have brought a cup up here. But, you know, that's what, whatever. But imagine a cup. Okay, we're going to do the imagine game. I'm holding a cup, okay? Imagine a cup. Whatever kind of cup you want. A glass, a coffee mug. If you go to a coffee mug, you probably have a problem because you probably drink a lot of coffee. But that's fine. I'm not going to go there this morning. I want you to imagine a cup. And I want you to imagine it just swirling with the wrath of God. And that's your cup. You've deserved that. That's what you're going to drink. God's not doing it to be vindictive, as I said, but he's doing it because that's the cup that you asked for. You might say, I never asked for that. 
in your sin, you rebelled against God. That's what you really want. The Bible says we don't even want the light of God. We want the darkness because our deeds are dark and we're okay with that. And so the wrath of God that is presented before you, you deserved it. You earn it. It's yours. It's not someone else's. Don't think about someone else. It's your cup. It's not because you're a bad person or more bad than someone else. We're all falling into sin. You could be a very good moral person. And guess what? If you die without Christ, that's your cup. He says, that's what I actually deserve. He says this, he goes on. This is the cup that would be mine to drink if I were given what I deserve each day. With this understanding in mind, I see that to be handed a completely empty cup from God would be cause enough for infinite gratitude. Imagine for a moment that wrath, that cup was poured out on the person of Christ and you are now free from the wrath of God. You are no longer going to be judged and condemned as a guilty, vile sinner, but you are welcomed into his heaven as a child of God because of Christ. Your cup was not just poured out on the ground. It was poured out on Christ. He took the wrath of God for you. Now imagine that cup is completely empty and he hands it to you. It was full of wrath. Now it's just empty. Milton Vincent says it this way, that alone is cause for infinite gratitude. But then he says this, if there were merely the tiniest drop of blessing contained in that otherwise empty cup, I should be blown away by the unbelievable kindness of God toward me. See, you're not handed an empty cup. You're handed a cup that you may think isn't as full as you want it to be with what you want it to be in there. But even the tiniest drop of the blessing and goodness of God in that cup should blow us away because we don't deserve the empty cup. We definitely don't deserve the blessings of God. And when we go through it and we experience bad things and we experience bad situations and tragedies, it's not easy, but we need to allow our minds to drift to the gospel because it is our greatest gift. Not only is our greatest gift, it is our greatest need. It is our greatest need. Turn with me to Luke chapter Five. Go back just a couple books. You're in Acts. Go back through John. And then you're going to go to Luke. Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5. I want to look at another familiar passage here and see that it is truly the greatest need. The gospel is our greatest need. Look at verse 17 of Luke chapter 5. It says this in the word of God. And it came to pass on a certain day, as he was teaching that there were Pharisees and doctors of the law sitting by, which were come out of every town of Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was present to heal them. I have to note this. The religious leaders that hated Jesus, that were there just to catch him, just to trap him, just to trip him up that wanted and will be the ones that end up leading to his crucifixion. I love that phrase at the end of verse 17. The power was present to heal them. Now, some have said, well, that means those that were needing physical hearing, healing. I don't believe that's what it says. I think it's saying the presence of God, the power of God was present to heal even the hardened, religious, distant heart from God. That Jesus, if they would have cried out in repentance, they would have been healed 
spiritually. God would have saved them even in that moment. So again, I love this because the grace of God is always reaching out to us. We cannot get too far for the grace of God to reach out to us. What we do with the grace of God, however, is up to us. Verse 18. And behold, men brought in a bed, a man which was taken in a palsy, and they sought means to bring him in and to lay him before him. And they could not find by what way they might bring him in because of the multitude. They went upon the housetop and let him down through the tiling with his couch, which is bed, uh, unto the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said unto them, or unto him, Man, thy sins are forgiven thee. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this which speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? They're not wrong, by the way. But when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answering said unto them, What reason ye in your hearts? Whether it is easier to say, Thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, Rise up and walk. But that ye may know that the Son of Man has power upon earth to forgive sins, he said unto the sick of the palsy, I say unto thee, Arise, take up thy couch, and go thy way, or into thy house. And immediately he rose up before them, and took up that wherein he lay, and departed to his own house, glorifying God. And they were all amazed, and they glorified God, and were filled with fear, saying, We have seen strange things today. Amazing story. Amazing story here. But as we go to this passage, and as we see this amazing miracle of Christ, we see Christ addressing this man's greatest need, even though he believed his need, his greatest need rather, was for physical healing and alleviation being the greater issue. Jesus addresses the greatest need the man has, but the man went and the friends brought him because they believed he had a greater need, that he needed physical healing. They, as we, only looked on the need that was causing the most pain and discomfort in his life. Let me say that again. They, as we, only looked on the need that was causing the most pain and discomfort in this life. They were not looking beyond to their spiritual brokenness in sin. So I want you to imagine for a moment, you're one of the friends. You've just done all this work, right? You, you've, you've tried to get in the building. You can't get in the house because there's so many people. So you go up on the roof and you start breaking through the tiling on the guy's roof, which again, awesome story unless you own the house, right? If you own the house, you're like, dude, like, what are you doing? They break this thing open, they lower this man down, and they're doing all of this for what purpose? Because they believe that Jesus could heal this man of his physical issues. That's why they were doing this. And Jesus looks at the man, and what's the first thing he says? Your sins are forgiven based on your faith. Meaning you have faith to believe in who I am and who, what I've come to do, and so I, I forgive your sins. Now, I love the way Alistair Begg points this out. Can you imagine, again, you're one of those friends and that's what you hear. Your sins are forgiven. Great. That's not why we came. Alistair Begg points it out this way. The friends, when they did all of this to get the man healed and Jesus says your sins are forgiven, the friends most likely thought we didn't come here for that. We didn't come here for some conceptual spiritual blessing. We came here for a real physical problem. But Jesus knew that the need or what he needed spiritually was greater than the physical. What he needed spiritually was greater than the need physically. Now, we know the man is healed physically as well. 
And Jesus using this whole thing to say, which is easier to you for me to say your sins are forgiven or get up and walk? Okay, your sins are forgiven. And by the way, get up and walk. And why does he do this? That they may know that the son of man has power. That God has placed Jesus Christ as the son of God, the son of man on this planet to point all people to the father for the glory of the father and for the salvation of their souls. And see, these friends come in and they go, wait, we didn't come here for that. We don't need that. Look, Jesus, it's great. And I feel like we do this too when we have bad things happen. We want Jesus or God, however you want to look at it, to remedy the immediate physical issue. God, that's great that you've given me the gospel, but that's not really what I'm talking about. Can you just take care of this problem? And I think we forget that our greatest need is not external, it's internal. And the gospel meets our greatest need. The gospel heals and brings peace to us greater than any physical healing. Isaiah says it this way, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes, we are healed. That healing is a spiritual healing from sin. When we are experiencing hurt in this world, wondering what the solution is, we discover the power of the gospel. It is our greatest need and our greatest gift. Let's go back to Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16. What is the solution that gives us a hope to put our eyes on, to focus on in this world that is broken and fallen into sin? Well, first, it's the gospel. But secondly, as those who have received the gospel, it's worship. It's worship. Look at Acts chapter 16, verse 25. And at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed... And saying praises unto God, and the prisoners heard them. The first thing we have to note in this idea of worship and how it helps us in this fallen world is looking at the example of Paul and Silas. Their worship changed their perspective. I truly believe this. Their worship changed their perspective. Paul and Silas are sitting in the deepest part of the prison, having been beaten for doing nothing wrong. And they've got two choices. By the way, we have two choices. You go through a bad day, you have a bad situation, something goes on in the world, something happens before you politically, geographically, whatever. You have two choices. One, we can complain. Some of us are good at this. Some of us are better than others. We complain. And we can complain, and we can complain. I I would call this whining. That's what I like to call this. Just whining. Oh, it's not fair. Why is this going to happen to me? This is not impersonating you. This is impersonating me. This is me being me before you. We can complain. Why, why now? Why me? This isn't fair. And really, when we say why me, what are we saying? We're saying, why are you letting this bad thing happen to me? I'm a pretty good person. Even as Christians, we forget what the gospel really represents and how bad we really are. Why? I mean, they could have complained. They did a good thing and they're experiencing a bad situation. Or we praise. We complain or we praise. Remember that even in this moment, they can praise because the cup of God's wrath has been emptied on Christ and their cups contain drops of God's blessings. They can praise because even in this moment in the prison, they can still say, but I'm with him. I'm in Christ. 
if I die in this prison, I'll be with Jesus. This is still nothing compared to the wrath of God that would have been on my life. And this is nothing that compares to the glory of heaven when I see my Savior face to face and I rejoice in his goodness and his grace for all of eternity. This is, this is a moment. Is it, is it just uncomfortable? Does it hurt? And there's different hurts and different levels and different things that affect us. And I understand that I'm not trying to minimize those hurts. But it doesn't compare to what's awaiting you in heaven. It doesn't compare to what was awaiting you in judgment in eternity without Christ. Our worst moments in this world cannot even give us a taste of what separation from God for eternity would have been like. When things get difficult don't make, and don't make sense, we can turn our minds to him, to delight in him. Notice, and I feel that I need to know this more than anyone else maybe, but notice that prayer was included in their worship. Prayer was included in their worship. When we begin with prayer, our minds in Christ will drift to singing his praises. When we begin with prayer and our minds are focused on Christ in prayer, our, our words, our lips, our songs will begin to drift towards him in praise. Last week we talked about in Romans being patient. That we patiently await the coming of Christ or this time with him. We said that we look forward with hope. We groan now, but there's a hope of something greater. And this patience is difficult because we see the world around us. We think, I don't want to wait any longer. I'm just, I'm impatient. So how do we have patience? How do we have endurance? The word patience, a lot of times in scripture, means endurance. So don't think patience like waiting room, waiting on the doctor to finally come into that little room, but then you've got to go to the other little room, right? It's just a bunch of rooms. You sit in one room and wait, then you go to the other room and wait, and then they come in for 10 minutes, and you're like, hey, touch the poke this, okay, done, go home, 75 bucks. It's like, what happened? So when you think about this, it's not that kind of waiting. It's enduring. It, think more marathon runner. Think more, I've, I've put in the training for this. I can endure this because I've put in the work. So what are we talking about as followers of Christ? This is a marathon. And one day we will finish our race and we will be with him. But for now, we endure. And we do it with joy. Why? Because we know there is a point to all this. We'll talk about that next week. And so when we praise him, when we switch our minds to focusing on praising him, it gives us the patience and the endurance. It's not easy. But our minds need to drift to him, not on what we see around us. Saying that, the reason this is so important to understand that our minds need to drift to him, our focus is on him, is because worship is not at its core about us. Worship at its core is not about us. It involves us choosing to acknowledge God in all that we understand him to be from his word. To give worth and weight to his name. To humble ourselves under his mighty hand. And to recall all the ways that he has shown himself to be Lord of all. Worship is not about feelings primarily. Worship will bring feelings and bring emotion. But worship is not at its core about feelings and emotions. And how you feel about a song. Or how you feel about worshiping. I just don't feel like worshiping today. It's not about your feelings. It's about acknowledging the truth of God's word. He is God. 
And he saved you from the depths of your sin, redeemed you, gave you a new name, says you're his son and daughter, and one day you'll be with him forever. And then, by the way, he also blesses you on top of that. And so when we gather or when we're alone, it's not about, oh, I don't feel like worshiping. It's about, no, you always deserve my worship. There's never a moment, a speck of time where God doesn't deserve every ounce of our praise. I don't feel like it. I understand that. I don't always feel like it. But it doesn't negate the fact that that's what we're called to do, to worship and to lift him up. Do you know why when you come in here, we sing? It's not to fill time. It's not to go, wow, that band's pretty sweet. They are pretty sweet, but it's not about that. It's about as the body of Christ just coming together and through music and through this, the lyrics in these songs to express what's in our hearts and minds. I mean, we don't sing because we all sound good singing together. Amen, hallelujah, somebody. Because I'm over here. I feel bad for, for Keith. He's got to stand right next to me. Sandra's dad's got to stand right next to me. I'm always like, oh, this poor guy. He's probably just like, wow, that's really bad. Okay. I always feel bad for people around me in worship. But I just sing. I don't care. Okay. No offense. I just don't. I just, this is for Jesus. Okay. I'm not singing a solo, Vic. That's not happening. That's just cruel and unusual punishment for everybody here. But but we don't come together because we're, we make a great sound, humanly speaking. And I, I, I wonder how many times we come into worship and we're like, well, I don't really like this song, so I'm just going to take this one off. Well, that's not really my style of music. I don't really like, you know, the way that is. I'm just going to take this one off. Well, I don't sound good singing, so I don't want anyone around me to hear me singing and think I'm a horrible singer, so I'm just not going to sing. It's not about singing primarily. It's just giving you an example. And we don't sing for anyone else but Jesus. So your feelings, I understand. Do you think Paul and Silas genuinely felt beaten, bleeding from the back? No medical care was given to them, by the way. They didn't go to the ER after being beaten. They were thrown in this dank, dark prison for hours. Wounds open, bleeding from the back. Many stripes. That means from shoulders to lower back, striped open. Split open. By the way, the way they would do these beatings, they would hit you with a thin rod, stretch over a boulder or a barrel. So when they would hit you, it wasn't just the initial hitting of the stripe, it was actually the tearing of the skin after the fact. You think they sat in this prison and went, mm, I feel like worshiping today. Humanly speaking, they're probably just as confused, just as wondering, but they made a decision. To not let their momentary feelings and trials distract from who their God is. And they're not super Christians. We can do the exact same thing if we just have the right focus. But I'll, I'll tell you right now, if you're not spending time with him consistently in his word or in prayer, you get into these moments, it's going to be a whole lot harder to make that choice. It's just it is what it is. When we gather to worship together, we lift up our voices to him, not because we feel like it, but because he is worthy and I don't know if Paul and Silas felt like praising, but as a result, the last thing I want to look at is their worship was heard. Their worship was heard. You see, we understand that their worship changed their perspective, but secondly, their worship was heard. The Bible says, and the prisoners heard them. What an amazing moment. These men who were imprisoned with Paul and Silas experiencing the same difficulty and pain, most likely having been beaten as well, hear them singing. There was something different about Paul and Silas, something that led them to praise, then complain. 
And that something was the Spirit of God working in them. In this moment, the ground shook, the doors were open. But notice, no one left. Not just saying Paul and Silas didn't leave, no one left. Not one prisoner tried to escape. So why is that? Why did these men stay? Doors open, chains fall off, I'm out of here. What if there were men in that prison just like Paul and Silas who did nothing wrong? but we're in prison anyway. Wouldn't you justify it? Well, I didn't do anything wrong. I can just leave. I shouldn't have been here in the first place. But the Spirit of God was moving in that prison, and they felt the pull of God's grace to say, no, I need to stay. I need to stay. And God moved in an amazing way. Paul and Silas remain as well again, maybe understanding the providence of God had placed them in that cell at that moment for a reason. When our minds and our hearts are fixed on Christ, even in bad and difficult situations, we will praise him. We will pause to think about God's will and God's purpose in those moments. And I say that again, and I know there's some in this room, because I'm not naive enough to think that's not true, that have experienced greater hurts and pains that I can't imagine. Not just the everyday stuff, but deep, real hurts. This is in no way to kind of undermine or or downplay your hurt, but it is to remind you that that hurt does not compare to the grace of God, to the goodness of God, to the will of God. And when we don't understand his will, we don't understand the why, we don't walk away, we don't doubt, we stop, we go, thank you for the gospel. It is my greatest gift, my greatest need, and I'm going to praise you. I'm going to worship you even when I don't understand. Yes, the world has fallen into sin and is a broken place to live. We experience hurt and pain due to bad people doing bad things. So what's the solution? Where do we fix our eyes? We don't fix our eyes on the world around us. We don't fix our eyes on some political system, some political leader. I don't care what party they're from. It don't matter. Well, yeah, but he's from, I don't care. That's not where my eyes are fixed. My eyes aren't fixed on a nation. My eyes aren't fixed on finances. My eyes aren't fixed on my wife. My eyes aren't fixed on my children, my church, my friends. My eyes need to be fixed on the author and the finisher of my faith. Because that's when true peace and true freedom are found. Because then, guess what? The world can throw you in the deepest prison. They can do all kinds of things to you. But they can't take the gospel. And so how do our brothers and sisters in countries all over the world endure persecution, beatings and trials and imprisonments, and yet say we praise God because they understand it's about the gospel, it's about worship. I deserve the cup of God's wrath. He emptied that cup on Jesus Christ and then gives me an empty cup with drops of blessing comparatively, and I am thankful for it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. And Father, we thank you for your word. I pray you'd be with those in this room right now, Lord, that are going through something. We live in a fallen world, Lord, and things happen to us and around us that we have no control over. Decisions are made every day all around us that greatly affect us. Father, I pray that as only you can, You would work in and through those situations. I pray for the one or maybe more here today, Lord, that are battling with something. Maybe they're seeing the world around them in brokenness and sin, and they're wondering why. What's the solution? Where do I fix my eyes? I pray you draw them to the altar.
they'd bend a knee and say, I'm going to fix my eyes on Christ. I'm going to fix my eyes on the gospel. I'm going to fix my eyes on worship and praise him, not just in singing songs on Sunday morning, but living a daily life of worship. Praying without ceasing, spending time with him in his word, letting my mind drift to the things of God and just see the goodness of God even in the bad situations. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would work in hearts and minds as I know this is a difficult message for some to apply, but I pray that by your grace, you would do a great work. Father, we love you. We thank you for all of this. If there's somebody here, Lord, who doesn't know you as their Lord and personal Savior, maybe they've been to church their whole life, but they've never personally received Christ, repenting of their sins, trusting in you, receiving your grace by faith, then, Lord, I pray that you would do a work today, that they, by the working of the Holy Spirit, would recognize their need for a Savior, their greatest gift and their greatest need being the gospel, and believe for life eternal. Father, whatever it is that you're going to do in our hearts and minds, I pray that we would respond faithfully in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand to your feet this morning? Maybe you want to come and pray. Maybe you want to come and thank him for the gospel, for providing your greatest need to the greatest gift. You want to come and say thank you, Lord. Maybe you want to come and just worship, just bend a knee and just praise him. Maybe you're going through something and you want to get your mind and your eyes fixed on him. Whatever it is, would you respond as we sing this morning?